Okay. Technology says we can go. Sheep and shepherd and sparrows. I remember seeing a report from ESPN in 2012 about David Nelson, who at the time was a wide receiver, a football player for the New York Jets. And in 2012, he was in Haiti, volunteering after the earthquake. He tells the story, he says, I found a small malnourished boy trapped in some rebar. I freed him and offered him food, water, candy, games, and he refused them all. Finally, I just asked him, so what is it you want? And the boy stood up, held out his hands, and in perfect English said, hold me? And he did. Nelson said it was the best five minutes of my life because I realized at that moment that I'd lived only for vanity. His words, his exact words, only for vanity. He and his brother then rented a three-bedroom house in Port-au-Prince and received a phone call last June. An orphanage in uh, uh, Port-au-Prince that was only there to bilk American relief money out of organizations had nine kids who were near death, infants to six years old. With the orphanage, so with the orphanage owners threatening them with guns, David and his brother and some helpers took the kids away. Now two brothers, well, then two brothers, both single, raising nine Haitian orphans that they are in the process of adopting. At the time, he said, my body lives in a condo in New Jersey and does amazing things on a football field but my heart is in a three-bedroom house in Port-au-Prince in the Western Hemisphere's poorest nation. See, when compassion is allowed to rule here under the sun, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? When we see compassion work, when we see compassion uh, act out from a heart and have, in, in action, have mercy on somebody else. But our teacher, our Kohelet, our king, in today's chapter in Ecclesiastes, says that that's the one thing that he's looking for and he can't find. Remember, he's, he's our teacher now in writing this book, but he used to be king. He's, he's taken on a different role and he said, my role as king and my role as Kohelet, the assembler of sayings that, that I, I, I give on to you, he said, the one thing that disturbs me is the one thing I can't find anywhere, is compassion. He begins this way, he says, again I saw all the what? All the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed, with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, but there was no one to comfort them. The words he uses are telling in his poetry. How many times does he use the words oppression here? Oppressions, oppressed, oppressors. It's an overwhelming problem, according to the teacher. And it seriously disturbs him. It's one thing that as king, he recognized and he accepts oppression as inherent under the sun. If you think about it, so do we, don't we? We may not think much about the oppression that is around us, but it is part and parcel of living under the sun, is it not? 
Has there ever been a time living on this planet, living under the sun, when there wasn't at least one group of people being oppressed? The Bible doesn't doesn't go very far without uh, pointing you out to people who are constantly being oppressed for thousands and thousands of years. But the king or the Kohelet might just be realizing right now that he was part of that oppression as a king. He he may be realizing and looking back on his life saying, that's how I stayed on my throne. The only reason I stayed on my throne was I was oppressing somebody. It's inherent in earthly kingdoms. He was an oppressor like Israel had been warned. Israel was warned by Samuel. He, the king, will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be as what? You shall be his slaves. They were warned. Now, I understand people come back at me and say, well, Solomon uh, uh, implicitly did not use Israelites for slaves. Maybe not for labor, but did he oppress? Was Solomon an oppressor? Of course he was. How did he oppress? Well, when he died and, and uh, his son was about to take his throne, the people that, that uh, Solomon had been ruling come to him and says, your father made our yoke what? Sounds like he was oppressive, not just in enslaving foreigners, but also the people that were supposed to be his subjects, they feel they've been placed under a what? A yoke. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. How did he oppress? Taxes. Remember I pointed out that uh, I was reading uh, in 2 in Kings in, in my devotion and found out that Solomon had appointed 12 governors and I thought, wow, governance, you know, empowering leadership. He, he's, he's putting people in charge, you know, he's delegating his authority. No, those 12 governors were in place in every province in Israel in order to just procure food for the palace. problem with monarchy, the problem with earthly kings, is that oppression is a must. There must be some oppression for a king to even stay on his throne. All the power, according to this, lies with who? Lies with the oppressor. So now he's looking back on his reign, and the mistreatment of the weak deeply troubles him. But notice, one thing he doesn't do that the prophets do. What do the prophets do when they recognize oppression? when they see that the widows and the orphans are not being cared for, when they see the the faces of the poor being ground into the dirt, what do Isaiah and Micah and Hosea say about that? They say, do something about it. They call it out. Kings don't. Solomon doesn't call anybody out. He just points it out and he accepts it as a sad part of life. He's telling us, and then that's it. What troubles him most is that there's an absence of human response to the suffering. Notice what he says. Again, all the oppressions, right? All the oppressions are practiced under the sun. Look at the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors with what? No one to comfort them. He's not taking on the role of the prophet here. What is he doing? He's indicting himself, yes, 
Because as we've pointed out before, the book of Ecclesiastes is his confession. He's confessing to us what he's done. He's confessing to us what he recognizes now in his old age and is looking back on. But in doing so, he's indicting who? He's indicting everybody who will not step up and help the oppressed. He's just leaving us with those words. He's giving us the reality. They have no what? They have no comforter. He accepts that oppression is inevitable and avoidable living under the sun, but what upsets him most is that no one seems to care. Think about the history, think about how he got on that throne. He's only the third person to sit on that throne. Israel wanted a king, they demanded a king from Samuel. Why? Why? Because during the time of the judges, they they were constantly getting the snot beat out of them by somebody else. Up and down, up and down during the judges. As long as we're worshiping God, everything's good. But the second that, that we begin to worship others, then other nations begin to take us over. So rather than just worship God, why don't we get a king who can beat the snot out of them? They have to be like other nations. Kings stay on their thrones. How? By oppression. Of enemies, yes, but also of their own people. They have to oppress their own people to stay on the throne. God had in mind that he wanted to rule Israel. And if they would have him as a ruler, then rule would be different in Israel. I love bringing up these laws because I, I, I point out that, that uh, you know, when the, when, the, when the law was given uh, to Moses on Sinai, the people were supposed to come up the mountain and worship God face to face and then, you know, get a, maybe a, a better glimpse of the law, a better revelation of the law. But they decided they were going to worship God on paper, right? They, they decided they were going to back off and only read about him. So God said, I, well, I know where this is headed. I know what's going to happen. All right, so I might as well write into the law uh, glimpses, if you will, of how I would rule if you would let me rule. If they're not going to do it, I'm going to make them do it, which, by the way, is not the way that he wanted at all, has never wanted the way at, at, at all. He doesn't want to make us be compassionate because then it wouldn't be what? It wouldn't be compassion. But there are these laws. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of what? Of justice. Everybody gets my justice. You can't make laws where somebody gets it and somebody doesn't. By the way, there is no legal standing for a widow or an orphan. If she cannot hold on to her husband's property by title, by by marrying his brother or somebody else, she can't hold on to it. So when she goes to court, says you better treat her fairly. She can't afford representation. She can't afford pledges. You don't take collateral from a widow, he's saying. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Widows and orphans are slaves in this society. Remember that you were slaves once and God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Take care of them. 
When you reap your harvest in your field, don't forget a sheaf in the field. You shall not go back to get it. Shall be left in the field for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that your Lord God may bless you in all your undertakings. You weren't allowed to, to uh, harvest the edges of the field because that, uh, that was left for the people that were traveling. It was left for the, for the alien. It was left for the widow and the orphan. He said, I'll take it one step further. If you're driving the harvest back to the barn and a whole she falls off the truck you can't go get it don't back up and get it leave it there for who I love these laws don't you when you beat your olive trees don't strip to, down to what it's left you're only allowed to beat it once whatever falls off on that first time that's yours leave the rest up there it's for who it's for the alien the orphan and the widow When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It'll be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. I've only witnessed them harvesting grapes a couple of times, but you know, whole bunches can hide up under, you know, if, if you've seen when grapes are ready for harvest, the branches of, of, you know, just the leaves, they grow way over. You gotta get in there. And inevitably, you're gonna forget a few in there. Now, a vineyard that is looking to do nothing but make money off this vintage, they go back and do it again. God says, no, you don't get it the first time. Don't go back and get it. All because they were supposed to remember what? That you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You were oppressed. You have been oppressed. You should know what this feels like. With God ruling over them, there'd be no oppression. Why? Because they would care for themselves. They would care for each other. They would do everything they could to care for each other. They'd care for the weak because they were to remember that at one time they were slaves too. Remember I pointed out before that, that Israel, uh, because of Solomon's wealth and the, the might that he brings Israel, the wealth and the popularity uh, worldwide that he brings Israel, they begin to live vicariously through him. So why is it God has to constantly remind Israel to take care of the poor, the weak, the orphan, the widow? Why? Because they'll leave it up to him. Well, he's the one that's taking uh, uh, you know, a tenth of everything. He's the one that's taxing us for everything. So let him do something about the poor. They left it up to the king. And by the way, they did it when it came to worship of God too. As long as the king was worshiping God, then the whole nation was okay, right? That's the way they saw it. It was the other reason they demanded a king. The king oppresses through labor and taxes, so let the king do something about the poor, the weak, and, and, and the orphan. I'm almost poor and weak himself because of his taxes. But that attitude forgets something. It allows me to forget something. It allows me to forget that I was once a slave in Egypt. I had nothing. I was a victim of oppression. See, but they forgot they were slaves. They're generations away from being oppressed themselves. The nation enjoys its greatest wealth in Solomon's reign, and they have forgotten. They just don't care. They don't have the capacity to care about someone else when they're being oppressed by their own king. 
It's where oppression comes from. Our nature abounds in it. Our nature works oppression out. Our nature works oppression into our DNA as human beings. There are physical and spiritual applications here, right and left. But spiritual oppression, religious oppression, you can oppress. We found ways to oppress using anything, including that which is good. Religion, charity, If we all remembered where we came from, we'd all remember what he reminds us of. We can even impress in the way that we use our scripture. And I'll point that out because in the middle of this chapter talking about the oppression, that's what comes up next. That's where you find these verses right here. Remember I told you before that Ecclesiastes is a book that we only read at funerals? Well, it was also a book that I only read at weddings. Because I had these passages in every one of my wedding ceremonies. Now, uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to still use them for weddings, but that isn't the exact context of this. this. These are the verses that follow Solomon noticing that there are oppressed people with no one to comfort them. This is the context. In the context, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A three-four cord is not easily broken. I think I was right, Brenda, in using this at your wedding, okay? Yes. But what Solomon is saying is this isn't for married people or it's not just for married people. Is it for single people? Yes. But sometimes we take verses and, and, and there, are, there are single people who may be lonely who hear them and say, okay, well, that's, that's not for me and I must be missing out. But what Solomon is saying here is that mutual care for each other is the only way to fight oppression. Why else was he put why else does he put these verses here? It's because we're single does not mean we're meant to be alone. And just because we're single, it also isn't meant that we're supposed to be married. Mutual care is for anybody in the fold of the sheep. It's for everybody in the church. The oppressed, oppression, and oppressors, mutual care. How can one, somebody who's alone can't experience that? It leaves him with one conclusion. (laughs) And this hurts, actually, this truly hurts. If we don't get this, he says, if you don't understand of beginning to care for each other is the beginning of the end of oppression under the sun, then you know what? I thought the dead who've already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive. If we're not gonna buy into it, that mutually caring for each other is the way to get at oppression, any oppression, which if you think about it now, why is the church here? to be that one place under the sun where people actually care for one another beyond what they can be done for them, beyond any selfish motivation or reason. We simply care because we care. 
He said, if there is really no place, then guess what? We're better off what? We're better off dead. Better than both is the one who has not yet been and not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Ouch. So I'm sorry, this is one of those points where there's no striving here. There's no, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, guys. Come on now, we can do this. Rah, rah, let's go. There's nothing about this. This is absolute, total despair. Solomon said, I'm the wisest man in the world and I've got no answer except we gotta begin to care for one another for reasons beyond the reasons that we can come up with under the sun. Hey, in chapter nine, verse four, he'll say, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. But also says that if you're still living, you still have hope. Being alone doesn't mean just being single. You can be alone. If I live only for myself, well, I can be married and have hundreds of kids and grandkids. But if I only live for myself, then guess what? I'm alone. And anybody only living for themselves leaves them wide open to become oppressors. If I don't begin to live for someone beside myself, I will become an oppressor. And I will find justifications for doing so. We place ourselves on an island. Being alone doesn't mean simply that you're single. But being alone, along with human nature, is the one ingredient that, that, that oppression feeds on. It's its oxygen, if you will. Having no cause outside of ourselves, it will make anyone an oppressor. So he comments on it. Again, I saw what? Vanity under the sun. The case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers, yet there's no end to all their toil. And their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure. This is also vanity and an unhappy business. He said, I've seen people who don't even have sons or daughters, you know, to be heirs, but they're working their tails off. And by the way, they're depriving themselves of their own pleasure. He said, what is that? You don't even have a family to give it to, yet you're striving for everything? It's a chasing after what? You have to ask, what is he chasing? That's what he's, what he's saying. What is he chasing? He probes, he's getting deeper to the depths of human motivation, and he finds no redemption under the sun. And, and, and he's saying, you can't find redemption under the sun by striving for everything. He asks all of us, why is it that you overwork? Why is it you spend your lives this way? It's almost like he anticipated what our answer would be. What would most of our answer to be? Why did we work? Why did we work so hard? Because we had what? We had families. Solomon was, was anticipating that. He said, I've, I've seen men who don't have families who work harder than you do. What's the deal? We work so we can care for our families, we can contribute to society, enjoy work more than anything else, and so on and so forth. And the Kohelet says, stop, just stop. 
I'll tell you why you work so hard. He says, let me tell you why you work so hard. The basic striving, the basic motivation is striving. It's rivalry. We want to be better than the next person. The desire, the top spot, crave recognition that we are the best. It says this, he goes on to continue to say, he says, we all have this in some respect. Now, by the way, it's not always bad, okay? It's not always bad to have a drive. It isn't, okay? Having a drive to be better does not equal evil. It's, it's, it's to the motivation and the degree which we use it. We have it in some respect. Like I said, it's not always bad. But if we all of a sudden get crushed because someone else receives more recognition, then it's time to sit down and think about why we do what we do. Not just in our work, but even in our charity. I hear a story like David Nelson's and what he could do for those children. And, and when I relay it, isn't there just a little bit of envy there? Couldn't we think of it first? We can question it, question his motives, or even play it down by judging. In fact, it's such a great act of compassion and really shows me in comparison of how poorly compassionate I am, then, then what I do is I begin to attack his motive for doing so. I start saying, oh yeah, well, you know, if I made an NFL salary, I'd adopt a bunch of orphans too. Or maybe, just maybe, I want ESPN to make a movie about me. Solomon reminds us that this recognition and fleeting and any other reason to even have acts of charity or compassion, that any other reason beyond that we just should care, period, is fickle and fleeting. He says, better is a war, but wise youth, an old but foolish king who will no longer take advice. The king is on his throne. He has recognition. He has popularity. His oppression has worked. He's still on the throne, but he won't take any what? He won't take any advice. So an, a kid comes along, all right? A kid comes along, you know, to take the throne. One can indeed come out of prison to reign, even though bore, poor, born poor in the kingdom. I saw all the living who moving about under the sun follow that youth who replaced the king. He said, guess what? That, that fame, that, that recognition that the king has, it could be taken away in a heartbeat as long as someone else is supporting somebody else. This kid comes out of prison, comes out of nowhere. He's got the recognition now. He has, he has the fame now. He has the ability to take the throne. But guess what? There was no end to all those people whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and chasing after the wind. Pretty soon another group comes up and they don't like the kid anymore. And the kid can't please them. So as his popularity goes down and his inability to oppress goes down, then they get what? They get the next guy. Kings come and go, rich and old. Popular follow him, poor kid coming out of prison. Crowd follows him, but then the next generation who doesn't know him, they pick somebody else. See what a king has to do to stay on the throne. 
has to figure out how to stay popular, has to figure out how to keep getting recognition, has to figure out how to turn that into some sort of oppression that can keep me where I am. Wealth, popularity, numbers rising and falling, always someone left behind, even when the numbers grow. Oppressions, oppressed, oppresses, with what? No one to comfort them. Solomon's indicting who? All of us. Anybody living under the sun. It's kings on thrones, but it's politicians in office. It's pastors in pulpits. Popularity, recognition. It takes us where? It takes us far. To a certain extent. And when we're fighting all of that, when we're, when we're starting to play by the, the under the sun's rules rather than the kingdom's rules, what happens to our love? What happens to our compassion? Jesus said this is the one sign of the end times, especially right before the end, because the increase of lawlessness, the love of what? Of many will grow cold. No reason to love anymore. All this vicious cycle has us down. So the two governments, I told you there's spiritual lessons abounding here. Can you give me time for just two? Two lessons that we can take away from this. The two governments, if you will, the two kingdoms, the two churches that we studied all last year, the, the two ways of doing things, the, the world's way and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of heaven, and governments and kingdoms. The Kohelet confessor is asking us to ponder this. I, I really believe that, that, the, that the teacher is saying, look, I need you to, to think about these things. I need you to ponder about what we're doing here. Because remember, he's speaking to a nation who claims to what? Who claims to be believers in God. He's appealing to us. This, this book, this letter of confession is in the Bible, which means it, it, it reached us for a reason, right? He said, I'm here contemplating and pondering my role in, this, in all of this. You need to take it from here. We need to apply what he's trying to tell us some 4,000 years later now. Two sets of rules. And for those of us who believe, we, we, do we have a king on the throne? Uh, in a way, I'll get to that in a minute. But really what we have is a shepherd in the field. The way that it's done in the kingdom of heaven is that the king is a shepherd. Arlene read to us, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who's not the shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and runs astray. By the way, Jesus knows he's referring to the kings who claim to be kings of believers simply because the throne is in Israel. He said, you know, they, they, they rule, but they what? Solomon says, they, they oppress. So do they really care for the sheep? As long as the sheep are serving them. The wolf snatches and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I'm the what? I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the what? I lay down my life for the sheep. How many sheep does he lay down his life for? He just said the sheep, right? See, we all picture uh, being a sheep within his fold, which means we're there, right? We're with him. We're in the fold. He, he said that he's the gate uh, the, uh, you know, to the pen. He's, he's the gate to the cave. We all picture ourselves being there. But then he had to add this into the parable. I have what? I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also for one reason and one reason alone. And what is that? That they can listen to my voice. So there will be how many flocks? One flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. For this reason, the Father loves me. That I would die for all the sheep. And who are all the sheep, by the way? Everybody under the sun. Right? This is why he loves me. Actually, what he's saying is, this is why I should be loved simply because I love everyone. And he says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. But nobody takes it from me. I've received this command from my father. So what kind of statement is Jesus making? To move beyond, to talk about him, we need to move the spiritual application. He's not talking to earthly kings right now. He's talking to us. He's talking to religious leaders. He's talking to believers. He's talking to churches and the reason and, and, and uh, why we do things and how we do them. How is it that, that a church is to be ruled? How is it that Jesus has decided to rule his kingdom? With a king or what? Or with a shepherd? There are several places, real quick, that the shepherd analogy is used. In Numbers 12, in Numbers 27, Moses is described as nearing the end of his life, asking God for his successor to lead Israel like a what? Like a shepherd. Let the Lord God of the spirits of all flesh appoint someone over the congregation who go out before them, come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. What is he describing? He's describing a shepherd so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Did you ever wonder why God did not come to, to Moses when he was the third most powerful man in Egypt? When he was in line to become Pharaoh? Why didn't God show up then and say, those people that are living out there in Goshen, I want you to free them. You have the power to do it right now. No, he waits 40 years later until Moses is old and has spent nearly 40 years with sheep. Then he says, now go get my people. He couldn't use Moses as an earthly king, but he could use Moses as a what? as a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, then take who? Joshua. I don't know if Joshua was a shepherd, but he sure had the right name. Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. You translate Yeshua into Greek, it's Jesus. You take Greek into English, it's Jesus. Joshua equals what? 
I'm not saying, I'm not saying that he chose Joshua just for his name. But you have to remember that when, he sent, when Moses sent him out as a spy, remember, he changed his name to Joshua. His name was Hosea before that. But before he sent them into the promised land as a spy, he says, your name now, from now on will be Yeshua, which simply means God saves. In Micah, God himself takes on the role as the shepherd. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I'll gather the survivors of Israel. I'll set them together like what? Like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. It will resound with people. The one who breaks out will go up before them. They will break through and pass the gate, indicating a what? A pen. Their king will pass on before them, the Lord at their head. In Ezekiel 34, uh, the kings of Judah are unfaithful shepherds of Israel. They've been unfaithful. So he says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, you shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed what? Feed the sheep. So God plans to become their what? All plan to be their shepherd. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. He then sets things right in the prophecy. The prophecy, he set things right. And what he does is that he puts his servant over Israel. And guess who he is? I will set up over them one what? One shepherd. My servant David, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So the good shepherd concept is associated with the big guys, Moses and David. So the concepts, by the time it it, it makes its way prophetically down to the gospel of John, Jesus says this, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He was the prophet who was raised up to be like him. He's not David, David, but he's the son of David. The only son of David still on the throne. A king in the line of David. Jesus is saying that he is the good shepherd once again. And by doing that, he identifies himself as Messiah. He's already told them that he's equal with who? That he's equal with the Father. Now I can argue what qualifies Jesus to be Messiah, anointed of God, not is that he's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But first, he is the good shepherd. And what makes him king of kings and lord of lords of the heavenly kingdom is that he is a shepherd. He could come to earth and rule it as an earthly kingdom. He could come to earth and just rule it as a king. Right? But God said, no, not my kingdom. You rule it as a shepherd. And it won't just be the ones in your pen either the sheep that you'll give your life for and rule over is who? Everybody under the sun. Now I heard you all amen that. But before you amen again, think this through then. Just think this through. 
How is the church structured? Think of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Think of how we're structured. Think of how pretty much any church is structured. Come down to our church, out to every local congregation. How is our church structured? What I'm asking is, what is our definition of success? What is it to the church in, in, in general, the church at whole? What is it that indicates health? What is it that indicates our church is growing? Numbers. The higher the numbers, what? The more we're growing. We count those, don't we? George Knight once said the worst thing that ever happened to the Seventh-day Adventist church is we learned how to count. Because as soon as we learned how to count, we started counting everything. They counted the pieces of literature that they passed out back in the early 1900s and late 1800s. Today we count what? Count tithe dollars, we count mission dollars, we count baptisms, we count attendance. But does increase in all those numbers indicate health or growth? No. But we use the same standard of success that the world under the sun uses. It's how we are defined. I have to tell you, as, as uh, for 35 years being a leader of the church, I have to tell you that one of the reasons why I have made a leader is because I have to remain popular. I have to be popular. I have, to, I have to be able to, to please certain people. I have to be able to attend to certain people. I've gotta be able to give a message that seems to please. Every church member says, well, don't tickle our ears, Greg. You know, you're here to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, come on. And that works fine until you do it. When my popularity goes down, guess what happens? I'm sorry, I really am. I'm sorry that you have to be punished or rewarded based on my popularity and my ability to please everyone. I really am sorry. I'll tell you what I'm more sorry of though, is that I'm sorry for all of the effort that I waste chasing that popularity. I really am. Because in doing that, I leave people behind because we begin to oppress. I'm really sorry. So one thing always to consider about popularity is to be reminded that Jesus says, I have what? I have other sheep, not of this fault, right? So one thing to consider is that it can't be about popularity. Because I will tell you that when you begin to bring sheep of other folds into your fold, who other people don't think belong, guess what happens to your popularity? And if you think about it, isn't that what we've based all this on? 
Why is it that, that we want to attract other sheep? We wanna, do we want to attract them because they look like us or because they not look like us? What do we make them do when they get here? But we're supposed to, actually, all we're supposed to be doing is bringing them in simply so Jesus can talk to them, simply so they can hear Jesus' voice. That isn't the way we operate now, is it? We tell people that they belong if they're willing to do what we say they have to do in order to belong. Jesus says they belong simply because they're sheep and they're mine. And I'm just saying that, that when I, I've, I've lived it, I've been there. You bring in people who don't belong, guess what happens to your popularity? So I'm just asking you to think it through. I'm asking you to ponder this as the Kohelet is asking us to ponder this. See, his eye is on the sparrow. And the reason that we know that he watches us is because his eye is on the sparrow. If he takes care of a sparrow, and and, and back in the Bible time, guess how much they were worth? Half a penny. Sparrows are, Don Pate once said, sparrows are nothing birds. They're nothing birds. They're everywhere. They're not even a dime a dozen. They're a half a penny each. Six cents a dozen. Jesus said, if I, if I am concerned about them, not one of them falls apart from the love and the grace of my Father. Sparrows, sheep, shepherds, kings. Who are we pondering? You have to remember, too, that when Jesus said this, the, the number of pagan fertility cults that other people belong to you know, sometimes we, we look at it and we say, well, he's talking about, you know, uh, varying degrees of believers in God out there. There were no varying degrees in believers in God. Israel was it. And how good a job were they doing at giving the nations the Father's voice? How good were they giving them their shepherd's voice? They weren't. They didn't have shepherds. They had kings. Just these lone prophets walking around telling each other these crazy messages of how much God loves them. And they said, yeah, yeah, keep it up, keep it up. And they had a way of dealing with prophets back then, didn't they? (laughs) Was there any job in Israel more popular than being a prophet? Just about any job in Israel was more popular than being a prophet. So just... With the Kohelet, think this through. Think this through to consider who belongs in this fold and who doesn't. What sheep are we deeming as less sheep? What sinners are we deeming bigger sinners than we are? And think what that has to do with popularity and recognition and wealth. The words of the Kohelet. All tears and no one to comfort them.
He's talking to us, isn't he? 